0: Welcome to the New Model Advisor podcast with me, Will Robbins, the editor. For another installment of our Fund Manager Meets Futurist series, I'm joined by Mark Stevenson, a consultant to blue chips, billionaires and other big deals. And joining us today from fund management, we have Bryn Jones, who is manager of the Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund. Bryn also studied geography at university and that may or may not be relevant to the topic of today's discussion of humanity's impact uh, on the world, otherwise known as the Anthropocene, uh, or in layman's terms, the era of Earth history in which humans have started to have an impact on its climate and ecosystems. Uh, you're right, not bad for a bond fund manager. That's what I thought too. So Bryn, it's you that raised to me the idea of the uh, the Anthropocene. Uh, so Why don't you explain to our listeners what is meant by that and how you kind of see it sort of influencing your thinking?
1: Yeah, so you've obviously all seen uh, Attenborough's uh, Netflix documentary about his statement about ecosystems recently, which was was fantastic. And in it, he mentions the Holocene, that we're in this geological age. And if you go back through millennia, you know, there were many like Jurassic and Cambrian periods so we're supposedly in this Holocene period, but arguably since the 1950s, you could say we've moved into a period where um, we're going to have a bigger impact on the environment. And the way that we can tell this is if we fast forward 10,000, 20,000 years from now, we will look at the soil and the rocks, and we'll be able to tell what was going on. So we'll be able to see, for example, that if you go back millennia, if you go back a million years and look at NASA data, at uh, uh, um, there has never been as much atmospheric carbon dioxide in this in the air as before, you know, and it accelerated exponentially in 1950. The parts per million went through the roof in 1950, and that's no accident that that occurred just as population growth kicked off. So, in the 1950s, there were just over two billion people on Earth. If you press Siri or ask Amazon or or anything, how many people there were on the planet, it estimates is about 7.8 billion. So in the space of 70 odd years, we've added over five, if not six billion people to the planet. And that has had a big impact on the environment. And we'll be able to see that, as I say, from geology. There'll be other evidence like global surface temperatures since the 1950s have accelerated quite aggressively, you know, over one degree Celsius. You know, the Arctic sea ice is uh, you know, millions per square uh, kilometers has, has, has dropped significantly since the, since the 1980s. And the change in sea levels as well, um, the sea height variation we' seeing since, since the 1950s has increased the, the Atlantic storm season you know it's, it's slightly endless you know the, the fact that you can now get a boat and go through the barrier you know, through the, the northwest passage is another indication of that. so there's these big overarching themes uh, that we're having a big in and that's just one area that's just the environment but you can look at ecosystems you can look at farming uh, and each of these things are an indication of, of that and so what we're trying to do, is look at ways to avoid the risks associated with that. So avoid businesses which are damaging the environment or, or, or starting to transition from banks which are which are which are uh, have too much lending in, in, in terms of carbon um, uh, neutrality uh, and moving to biz- businesses which are, which are addressing that or or, or or technologies which are addressing that, like solar and wind and you know the population growth. You know how do we house these people? So social housing, affordable homes. Um, biodiversity destruction. So, looking at businesses which aren't exposed to, to, to destroying the local local environment in order to, to get resources in fact avoiding resources like mining and rare earth and etc so this is how we, we've looked at things for the last you know five years um, in terms of specifically around the Anthropocene theme it's avoiding the risks as, as Mark mentioned that's not being priced in but also trying to take the benefits from businesses which are going to Going to improve society and environment in that kind of new age.
0: Mark, I mean, it reminds me of the scene in The Matrix where um, Agent Smith uh, <laughs> is is c- compares humanity to, to a virus. I mean, yeah. we know all about viruses, how damaging they can be. He presents somewhat compelling case for replacing us with robots and plugging us into a machine. Despite what sort of Bryn said and a new optimistic attitude, it does seem like a bit of a runaway train humanity yeah. we're, getting, we're still breeding we're still consuming mm-hmm. these are very big forces to change um yeah. i guess just to flip back from from agent smith to david attenborough he does talk about demographics a bit a little bit mm. and what might happen there where are the breaks here Those significant breaks are going to slow things
2: down well so the good news is that the the fertility rate is dropping all around the world so the replacement fertility rate is 2.1 children per woman. And we're heading very fast towards that. So I think it's about 2.3 now. Back in the 50s and 60s, as Brim was saying, it was going through the roof. It was about six or seven if you took the world as a whole. So that's slowing down now. And in fact, there isn't a single country in Europe, Russia, North America that is naturally replacing its um, its population with, with the indigenous birth rate. Um, So so that's that's good, but it still means that by the United Nations median variant estimate, which is statisticians speak for best guess, is that we'll end up at about somewhere between nine and 10 billion people sort of by 2050, at which point it should level off on current trends, although things could, of course, change. So the question then is, Can the planet support 10 billion people in a way where we meet the needs of, you know, the individuals and societies to thrive and have access to, you know, water and healthcare and all that kind of stuff within the bounds of the planet? And the answer to that is yes, that's perfectly possible to do, but not in the way we're doing it at the moment. And going back to Attenborough, I think part of the thing is the narrative here of of how we think about the Earth. So we have been brought up in a world where we've thought of the, the Earth as a thing we can exploit for our pleasure. Uh, something that we can just, you know, uh, and dump our rubbish into without costing that in. Um, what I think we need to do sort of narratively is as a species is to fall back in love with our planet. I think it's a story of love and how precious and wonderful it is that we are alive and conscious in this moment to be on this wonderful spinning spaceship and and, and enjoy the majesty of it and the beauty of the human uh, condition and, and uh, our place in the universe. And the moment we don't have that. We see ourselves, and I think the problem with the virus analogies: we start to hate ourselves, then we'll start to hate our home and we won't worry about trashing it. And you see that, That so I think we've got to fall back in love with the idea of the human as a benign force and then fall back in love with the planet as well. Say, well, what do we do to fix this? And there are all, all lots of people doing that. And it seems to me that actually the solutions come from a, a place of joy and, and humility, not from a place of self hatred. And unfortunately, yeah. the, the predominant Economic models we have are all about individualism and saying, you know, you compete against somebody else and you have to corral the resources for yourself. And it's all about competition. And we need new economic models like Kate Ray with Economics, which are much more about co-inspiration and cooperation than they are about. And again, some of the stuff I'm doing in the military space is actually about trying to get militaries, for instance, to collaborate on climate change, which sends an incredibly strong message to the rest of the world. So I think that's where we need to get to. Um, and i think you know that moment is has been accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic because to one degree or another we've all been in it together and we've realized that now it doesn't mean everybody suddenly had this wonderful sort of epiphany but certainly the scales have shifted to, in, to some degree and we can argue how much in a direction of a more collective response to our global challenges and that's that's the moment to seize i think and i've been saying to a lot of my friends who i work with you know that We've kind of been in training for this next five years, for the last 20. The next five years are a bit like our Olympics with COP26 coming to Glasgow, with all the wonderful things that are happening in some of the more enlightened spaces in investment and in government, all that kind of stuff. And we just got to keep on pushing that. We won't win all of it, but we might be able to push the balance such that 20 or 30 years from now we're going, OK, that was a moment things changed. And we started to bring ourselves into an ecological civilization where, yes, we could design a system for 10 billion people to live and thrive within the the, the bounds of the planet.
0: Can I I add a few
1: points there? I mean, just, um, you know, there was a famous poem, I remember when I was growing up, about a small sphere that was blue and green, was about 12 inches in diameter and floated over a field in the middle of Cotswolds. And when people saw it, they would come all from all over the world to look at this sphere and wonder at its beauty, at its you know, at the seas on it and and the small animals running around on it. And it would be protected. It would be so rare that there was this small little blue planet in a field somewhere that it would be protected. And it's it's that 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 poem that I read many years ago. I, I still think of today because if we did move away from this planet and look at it, we'd think what a beautiful place, we need to protect it and people forget that. And, and I think that's a very valid point that, that Mark's made about how we need to, to fall in love with the planet again and how, you know, not abusing it. And I think there's a few things I would add to that, just sort of taking it away from sort of like the, the, the kind of airy fairy kind of approach to, to actually some things we can do to, to affect changes. What we do know about demography is if we move people out of poverty and we give them an education, then demography tends to level off. It's only when people are very poor they worry about their children dying, they have no education, they need yeah. because they're poor they need to, to need to have as many children as possible to go to work to to, to to create a living. That's when we get bad demography. And what 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 a sad irony of coronavirus is globally is that it will put more people into poverty and it would increase the amount of uneducated people globally. You know, some you know we live in our little boxes here in the UK with computers and and kids that can do homeschooling. There are many kids around the world that aren't getting that. So I think that's key as a human race. We need to keep driving people out of poverty um, and to give them an education in order to reduce uh, and, and control that level of demography. But there's also another shift that we're seeing, and I think this is important, is that in 2030, the level of millennials and younger voting Will outweigh the older silent generation and baby boomers, and that's that's massive. If we look at the, if we look at the uh, huge intergenerational shift that we've seen over the last few years, that it's the millennials and younger generation that didn't vote for Brexit, they didn't vote for Trump, they voted for Clinton. And if you look at the the breakdown of U.S. Congress now, it's about a third, which is millennial and younger. And over the next five years, as those voting patterns will shift we already know that millennials and the younger generation are already more socially conscious. They're more environmentally conscious. And I've seen it in meetings. I, I don't go to a meeting now where there's, and, and not to be stereotypical, where there is, there's a, a young woman under the age of 30 who's absolutely uh, hitting me very hard over the head about what we're doing about the environment, what we're doing about carbon, what we're doing about the climate. And that's a, that's a big shift from what I saw 20 years ago Mm. Where there would be a grey-haired gentleman who would take me out for lunch, and that would be uh, that would be a ticket. So things have changed significantly, and and I think that's massive. And this will have a big, big implication on regulation, how we invest, what we do as as what we do as a society. And I think that's that's key. And I think I'm very aligned with
2: with Mark on in those points. Mm. I mean, there's that great phrase, isn't there, by Peter Drucker, just culture, each strategy for breakfast. But that also means that when culture changes, strategy can change. And I think in any any shift there are two things that need to change. One is the culture and the sentiment of the world that people think begin to think and feel differently, and then the money has to think and feel differently as well. And you're starting to see that uh, now. I mean, same with me, twenty years ago, I'd be wandering into investment houses and bashing people over the about the environment, and I'd be being shown the door and sort of you know, who let the hippie in? And now investment houses are inviting me into act as an advisor to say, can you can you hold our feet to the fire on this? So that's happened within the span of my career. I mean, everybody's late to the game, but the game is to the foot.
0: Mm. Worth hearing from you, from your perspective, how you feel that the flow of money can affect change here. There's obviously this sort of ESG, revolution, I'd call it, but the, sort of the, the the ESG becoming a bigger thing this year, the last year, has seen a focus on where money's put when it comes to companies, to corporates. And I want to hear, so your version, position of that, because I think we haven't spoken to enough bond managers about yeah. it, but governments as well. But yeah, perhaps there's a focus on, on sort of how you see corporate behavior changing. Or, or yeah, not.
1: I mean, definitely. I mean, you know, if you think about ESG, it all comes down to the cost of the capital, right? So, you know, Mogadigliano, Miller, you know, if, you, if, you, if your cost of capital goes up too much, and your leverage goes up too much, you go bust, right? And so what, what's interesting is, the simple fact is that, you know, if we're going to invest in businesses that are doing things properly, their cost of capital goes down, and they can continue to go. So, ideally, in a real, in an ideal world, what we do is you know, the capital will force businesses that aren't doing things environmentally, socially, or or good governance out of business, mm-hmm. and those businesses that are doing it properly will be able to their cost of capital will reduce, and they'll be able to, to to carry on. And a good example of that is in 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 energy. You know, the cost for oil majors now, the cost of capital is now higher than most renewables. In particular, you know, we've seen solar and wind wind energy as tech has increased as well in that space and pushed down the cost of, of 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 the tech. We're starting to see that shift, and if investors also move in that space, then you know you'll push out those businesses. And it's you know we've already seen some of the oil majors now talk discuss that you know, that, that they're going to move their their portfolios of of, of, um, of production into into more renewables. And you know, we've we've done that. You know we've invested in things like Audax, which is an Iberian. Uh, energy provider in the renewable space, Vayner Energy, uh, which is an Asian business, uh, ScarTech Solar. Uh, these are the kind of areas we've pushed into. And, and similarly in the social space, You know, we've, we've been investing in things like Kellogg's Foundation, Ford Foundation, which are tackling inequalities and social justice. Uh, IFFIM, which is the immunisation programme around the world, and uh, and help to distribute COVID-19 vaccines into the poorest countries of, of the planet. And that, that filters into my thesis about, you know, being able to deliver uh, into 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 areas of poverty and, and 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 improve the improve the planet as a result of that, but also in governance. You know, there was a, I won't name the name, but there's a particular business which um, we we identified had very poor governance, uh, but also uh, had promoted uh, somebody that had um, had uh, basically internally been fined uh, quite a substantial amount of money for for sexual harassment and actually made that person CEO. Um, it was only shareholder pressure. Uh, which, which forced that CEO back out and the chairman to resign. Um, and it's that kind of approach that we want to continue to do, make businesses better, make the environment better, make the planet
2: better. And the greater amount of capital that comes into that space, is only for the good. The generation coming through really understand that actually a much more democratized and distributed approach to governance and whatever is far less divisive. And when you give people things to build, their politics pretty much disappears. You know, I like to say that you don't build bridges from a left wing or a right wing perspective. You know, you just, you know, and people when they can say, well, what do we need to build? Where do we need to put the school or where, you know, how, how are we going to build a solar plant or whatever? And they stop thinking about it from left and right. They just stop thinking from an engineering perspective. And so we need to have a much more local participatory citizenship approach to the world. And when and and the evidence is in that works time and time again and the return on investment on that is absolutely enormous. It's slightly more expensive to organize because you have to organize more and more people to get together and collaborate. And that has a management overhead. But the ROI on that management overhead is insane. Uh, But our problem is that governments, you know, and indeed corporations and the people in charge them like the power they have. And to say to them, actually, there's a better to do this by not having you having less power and you giving power to people doesn't tend to work well emotionally with people who spent their entire life thinking that the way to succeed in life is as much power of as many people as possible so it's a cultural battle we need to win
1: yeah and, and on that point you know some of the community investment corporations we've invested in like burnham and western big community solar energy uh, so one you're getting renewable but after they pay the interest costs and, and maintain the business all the excess revenue goes back into the local community we really like those investments. There's a single wind turbine in in, in the Highlands in Scotland, in In Kogad, uh, in Aberdey. Similar kind of thing, you know. This this area's got very high unemployment, very high poverty, very few jobs. We're going to create a, 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 an investment where we invest into renewable energy, and the excess profits go into the local community. There, there's some great ideas there, and again, you know, more if we could do more of that in in, in the UK. Um, that would be great too i mean, it's, it's, it's something that could easily be delivered
0: that's really interesting Bryn. just just to just to unpack that a little bit because was intriguing so when you say how does that work for you as a, as as a as a fund as a kind of uh you know sort of um red and tooth and claw fund although although you are an ethical fund because how how much money are you making how are you making money out of out of that uh, so, it's a really so basically, story. it's a bond investment. So we, we put
1: up the capital, say, yeah. hypothetically speaking, let's do a hypothetical example. There's a solar energy plant that's producing uh, energy. Uh, it's getting paid for that energy. Um, so it makes a, a revenue. Um, there's costs of running a business, so that gets taken out. But we've done the money, they pay the interest cost to us, mm-hmm. so we get a coupon. Uh, and then the rest of the money will go into the local community. So the excess uh, profit Rather than going into a shareholder or a dividend, is paid as a dividend to the community, uh, and that's how you, you work it. And you know, at the end, the, the way that the, the business model is structured is that by the end of the maturity of the bonds, there's a certain amount of reserve capital which can be paid back to you as the investor, uh, and you receive your principal back. So,
0: mm.
1: you know, that's all we're doing We're just lending money to, to very good ethical and social products, uh, 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 fund uh, bonds, yeah. which deliver us a, a good you know strong cash flow uh, at higher yields than you might see in in government bonds um, and we pay that onto our investor and our investors happy because they're getting a social return and they're getting paid a uh, uh, an income and possibly some capital appreciation from if we trade those bonds
0: last year the uh, our chancellor Rishi Sunak uh, announced Britain will issue its first green government bond next year and I think, in a sort of, you know, in a bid to capitalize on on demand of the sentiment to fund environmentally friendly projects, maybe the UK is the first. I'm not sure, but the idea of a green government bond, Ben, I'd be interested to to know whether this is on your radar. Is this something you plan to invest in or would invest in?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not the first. Um, there's been okay. green bonds from Fiji, uh, Poland, France, Nigeria. Wow. Uh, globally there and there's been blue bonds from 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 Seychelles and Maldives yeah. area so we're not the first um, in fact we're, we're a little bit behind um, yeah. well I've actually been going to Whitehall for for 15 years uh, as part of the DMO consultation process for, for guilt and um, guilt wow. and I do remember my very first few meetings where I was a lone voice from a very small firm called Rathbones calling for green gilts and I do remember Lord Sassoon looking over his glasses and, and, and looking to the DMO chief and sort of going is that really a thing in one of the meetings and uh, and another meeting being Whitehall and the playground that it is um I, I think it was uh, Mr. Hands uh, the MP that I basically said does the government's um contribution to uh, climate change stop at them not changing light bulbs in in the meeting room that we were at, because there were a few light bulbs that were out, which did cause a lot of chortles and and laughter. But yeah, so I've been lobbying the government for years and years on this, but it's in the last three years, it was the weight of the large pension funds that were around the table from our big competitors that um, started to, to shout much louder than I could shout being a little small minnow. And, and they've taken note of that, and they will issue green gilts next year. Um, it's still not defined on use of proceeds or whether there be equivalents. Um, ideally, I think there will probably need to be a change in legislation for them to have use of proceeds. Um, so hopefully, they will go down that route. Um and that
0: means that they can only spend the money raised by the bonds on certain things?
1: Correct. Specific pro- products with second-stroke third-party uh, assessment on what they're doing.
0: So hopefully they'll go down the right
1: route. Um, You know, there's a whole debate about nuclear. Hopefully that gets struck off and doesn't get included. In you know, it is a it is a way to 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 get to um, to carbon neutrality. But you know, I don't really want a big um, nuclear power at the end of my garden, um, and not as anyone else. And when that goes wrong, it goes on quite badly. So um, yeah, I I think it's it's a good move. Uh, It's it's fantastic. It's going in the right direction. But what we haven't got in the UK is a development bank. you know, we sold off the Green Investment Bank to Macquarie, so the infrastructure bank for, for that is, is gone. Uh, we need a development bank in particular with us now moving out of Europe and the EIB, which was a big supporter of projects, including wind turbines and offshore wind farms, which they ensure, you know, the 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 off 15% of, of one of our big offshore wind farms. Without that, we need a development bank, uh, and that's something they need to address particularly, and hopefully a development bank which is focused on the sustainable development goals.
0: Wow. OK. And Mark, I mean, I, I was obviously ignorant of the many uh, sort of green bonds around. Is that something that you've come across? You, you speak to various government organisations.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, there are green bonds out there. I think what's the, the thing I wanted to mention, which I think is uh, a really important shift, is that the law is now being brought to bear on governments by people like Client Earth. who are basically saying, look, actually, there's some pretty good environmental law out there and environmental regulation and all that kind of stuff but nobody's enforcing it uh, but client earth at, who actually are uh, funded quite a lot by investment houses on the back because the investment houses are again like if you can enforce this law and get the government to actually pay attention to its own laws when it comes to the environment it, make, it makes it much easier for us to invest and recommend investing in things um, like this because we want to be on the right side of the law so um, the UK government now consults with client earth before they start writing legislation because they're fed up of losing in court uh same in poland uh, client earth have just written um a whole bunch of chinese laws so that chinese uh, 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 citizens can take their government organization to court for breaking chinese environmental law which has you know recently been uh bolstered enormously so there is uh a big shift going and I would say to anybody who really wants to um, have a, a direct impact on making the world a better place, then investing or giving a donation to Client Earth wouldn't be a bad idea, because they will create the legal framework in which it becomes much easier for all of us to um, invest in things that are environmentally and socially friendly.
0: And Brilliant. Just the the, the idea, of, we talk about the, the word green bond is also used uh, in other contexts in the in, you know, corporates issue so-called green bonds. So when you're investing, you know, obviously you're looking at businesses that have the right credentials. But you, there is such a thing as a gr- called a green bond as well. Just for uh, my sake and and that of the listeners, can you explain what that is when it's issued by by a business and whether I mean are, and are they any are they valuable to you at all or or not?
1: Well, I have to follow the green bond framework. Um... They, We do our own independent research, as, as you know, right going back to the beginning of this conversation, we're an ethical fund, uh, so we prohibit alcohol, tobacco, life sciences, pornography, various other things. And so you might have a business which might be doing animal testing in its building, it might be retrofitting that building to make it more environmentally friendly, but they're still doing animal testing inside, or they're still producing tobacco. Um, so just because it's got a green label there, it doesn't necessarily mean we can invest in those. There's a the, 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 the most famous one for the last few years was a very large oil tanker business, which basically issued a green bond or tried to issue a green bond on the basis it was going to make its oil tankers more efficient to ship oil around the world. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you, wow, wow. You know, it, it's down to the individual. And it comes down to religion. Great that they're making their tankers more environmentally friendly. But again, as I say, it comes down to almost your investor's belief or, or, or your belief in the way that we should get to, to, to the end game. Uh, and I think that's important. As investor, don't just take it for face value. Um, understand the business or invest in fund managers like ourselves that will have a policy statement. And if you believe in that policy, then you should follow that and invest in it.
2: Uh, Einstein said this rather brilliantly. He says, you cannot solve the problems you've got with the level of thinking you're at when you created them we've got a whole bunch of problems created by a system of thinking which is like we will invent our way out of this and we're finding that's not easy to do um so what we need i think and what i hope the pandemic will will deliver more of is what i would call roman chris would call ancestral thinking which is we start to think of our investments not just in terms of how they're going to benefit us but how they benefit our children and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children and if you're thinking five or seven generations ahead actually you'll get a return on investment on your own life as well, because you're building a a system and a society that actually works for everybody and isn't becoming a cost on the future. I mean, we're paying for the fact that, uh, you know, people before us did not think of the cost and did not think systemically. And if we carry on thinking like that, then, uh, then we deserve everything that hell can offer us. Because to destroy your own children's future is perhaps the greatest crime you can imagine. And to destroy the home upon which they live and all their hopes and dreams and that's what we've been doing so a bit more ancestral thinking a bit more humility a bit more systems thinking and will i know that you're recently a new father so um I, i'm sure that's resonating with you because uh, your your new one will hopefully grow up in a world where we think about each other and the future a bit more systemically than we've been taught to
0: yeah brilliant well, well mark thank you very much and I will end it there so thank you to your to you both
2: thank you very much
1: thanks for having us <laughs>